You're listening to Wake Up Tucson. This podcast is a Bustos Media production on The Voice. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So while Bill put out this thing uh, by Inc. Magazine, uh, INC period, and it's uh, meet the 166 companies making an outsized impact on the Southwest. Number 148 out of 166 of the Inc. companies that are making it happen is a company called Tucson Tamale. So according to this, Todd and the crew are making Mexican tamales sold in Matt, guess how many stores nationwide sell Tucson Tamale? I know this is one of these unfair guessing questions I torture you and Ed over the years. Somewhere between 500 and 1,000. 5,000. 5,000. Thank you. Right? I mean, this is this is what we're... So, again, uh, the, most, the most underrated... This is two-year growth was 76%. Not on fat federal dollars like Paradigm Labs. So... Again, I'll keep saying it over and over again. Todd and Sherry Martin are cranking out tamales. They have a huge facility here in Tucson that actually... So a local company that produces something, right? Produces something. Produces a product, yes. Right? Local workers making tamales. That are darn good, I'll tell All you. Right. And, and, but, and they're in 5,000 uh, 5, bucks... 5,000 stores, excuse me. And there are two words in large font on the package. and What, what words are those? <laughs> Tucson well, and Tamale? Tamale and Tucson. The name of the city, yeah. <laughs> this, is your, this is your observation. I'm just parroting it, but it's, it's, worth, it's worth, you know, repeating. So, so think about this. Visit Tucson, right? Should be thrilled that Todd and Sherry have a thing called Tucson Tamale that's in 5,000 stores nationwide. So the last time I had lunch with Todd, okay, Todd, um, th- this is last year. They were going, they were, they were doing a test run in Walmart. So basically, they were doing all Western stores of Walmart in the Western region of Walmart, and they were doing one or two Eastern state test markets to see how things went. No one's doing this in this town. No one's doing five thousand. No one's doing five thousand of anything. In this town. So then you say, Chris, why would, um, why is this, why, why does a guy and gal family owned company? Um, I also noticed that the losers from worldview weren't anywhere near this list. The much celebrated worldview is even on this list, right? So, um, the, um, so Chris, why doesn't Tucson, there's no other company who has done what they've done. There just isn't. Whether you, and whether you like their tamales or not, I don't care. Because I know some, I've heard the whole, well, they're not real. Either they're tasty or they're not tasty. And the other thing is. It's a matter of personal preference. Yep. They've also figured out how to do the tamale that when it's frozen for a long time, it comes out pretty good on the back end after you mic it. Okay. This is just the way life is. Right. Let's go to the phones, and then I'll I'll, I'll I'll repeat the reason why Tucson Tamale gets no love in this town. Cynthia, good morning. Welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. Those Tucson Tamales are excellent. I always have some in my freezer. What's your favorite I kind? I, uh, I like the pork, green chili, and cheese. Well played. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they. I mean, they're. 
they're great from Frozen, just amazing. Correct. They they're they're doing a very mm-hmm. good job. The only two places I'll get a tamale from in this town that like does that, that Frozen is going to be from our Carlotta at El Charo or from the Tucson Tamale Kids. So. Oh well, Tucson Tamale is close to me, so that's where I go. Amen, sister. Thanks for the good call, Cynthia. Have All a good right. week. Sure. Oh, you too. Bye. 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 The reason why Tucson Tamale doesn't get any love from this town from the media. White people making tamales. That's the only reason it could be. Because their names are Todd and Sherry Martin. If you think about it, right? If you were the mayor of Tucson, which I wish someone of you, one of, one of anyone else out there could have be mayor of Tucson instead of this young lady we have now. Uh, if you were the mayor of Tucson and you're looking to celebrate something economically in your town, it's a product called tamales, which is very central to our community here. And our cuisine, city of gastronomy, right? And check this out. There's millions of product being sold every year in 5,000 stores across the country that says the name of your city on the package. Ignored. Ignored. You would think the losers at like Sun Corridor, that'd be the first thing on their brochure and on their sales pitch. We have a homegrown company here. They make tamales. They're in 5,000 stores, including Sprouts, Whole Foods, and Walmart. That's a pretty good cross-section of humanity. And if you look at the Whole Foods that they're in, I think that's a hell of a demographic that has something called, I don't know, extra cash in their pocket to might want to travel one day to a place that's called Tucson. Absolutely. So here we go. We have another reason. 76% growth of a local company. That's in 5,000 stores. This is over the last 24 months. And Tucson doesn't care. I got Dave Wickner doing a profile of the revenue manager of the losers at Worldview. That's a news story. It's insane. Absolutely insane. I, can't, I, I don't know. It, there can't be any other reason than gringos making tamales is a turnoff to local power. I mean, I don't get it. You'd figure the losers at the Tucson Chamber would be championing a local company. I will tell you that there's an entrepreneur that I know in this town that wants to do more food production and wants to do more, scale up his business. And I put him in connection with Todd because Todd went through all the pain of scaling up Tucson Tamale. And I'll tell you, Todd was very generous with his time and knowledge to this young man. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a difference in this guy's life moving forward, scaling up his business. So it's not like Todd's just sitting in a, bowl, in a little, uh, little sphere and ignoring everybody. One more segment with Dr. Filippo, The economic development plan. Let's oh. do this. Okay, so now what we've got, this is, this is precious. You just couldn't ask for it. As I'm driving here, I'm like going, oh my gosh, he doesn't realize. There's Stiletto. Oh. Stiletto's on there too. Yes, their name yes. On it, thank God. That's that, that's that party that we had to contract because we don't have any competent people in economic development or the $650,000 year we that figured we paid it out to Sun Corridor. Between Sun Corridor and what's sitting at, at um, Pima County Economic Development, there's at least one to one and a half mil worth of payroll there. Yeah. Yep. And we had to hire an outside hire company an outside company to do interviews with business owners. And I'm sorry, but I am looking at the how many pages. Hey, how do you like business here? This is uh this is Tony from Stiletto. Yeah. How you doing, huh? Oh yeah, the crimes got you down. Stop being a wuss. 
Okay, so <laughs> the, so the, what this is, is Jan did a memo, and it's dated March 3rd, and she basically says, okay, look, Board of Supervisors, we're going to, I want you to take a look at this plan that establishes strategies for achieving inclusive economic growth and upward mobility, growing workforce, and increasing prosperity. I want to repeat that, listeners. Okay, our economic development strategy is going to look at economic growth and upward mobility, growing our workforce, and increasing prosperity. Now, as I'm driving here, you had this very interesting conversation about these two companies. Sure. One one being Pinnacle. Okay. No, Paradigm, I mean, Paradigm Laboratories. Paradigm. Paradigm. That they donated at least $11,000 to Rex yes. Scott and Sharon Bronson as they're getting contracts renewed for COVID testing. Now, let's take a look at Paradigm. What kind of work does Paradigm do for us for the contract? Uh, they're doing uh, COVID testing. Okay. Do you think that's economic growth and upward mobility? Zippo. Do you think Zippo that it is... Zippo de Filippo. Do you think that it is growing the workforce? <laughs> Zippo. Do you think that it is increasing prosperity? Zero. <laughs> yeah, my pal Jimmy oh, Warner. My, li- my little dean. <laughs> okay. So we, say, uh, we see that Paradigm has failed. As part of the economic strategy. They're saving plan. lives, yes. Joanne. Yes. They're saving lives. What, what I find interesting I'm going to do the is, whole segment in Brooklyn. What I find interesting <laughs> is how we have taken COVID, COVID-19, COVID-associated 19, okay, yeah. and taken it, and it has become an economic driver, okay? It's how true. A pandemic has become an economic driver. It is. We got nothing else, DiFilippo. <laughs> what we does got that, nothing else. What does that tell you? What does that tell you about this community? Well, and again, right, it's not private. It's no, no private money is going into this stuff, right? Your job as a community is to attract not just money from your own people that work, live and work there, outside investment yes. into what's private investment. Yes. Right? So when you say, hey, look at us, we got government money that was printed or borrowed that's blowing up inflation and screwing the working poor, but you know something? Paradigm's killing it. Yes. So, I mean, that's what you're So at. here's what I want to say to Stiletto. 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 <laughs> Being the Sicilian that I am. Stiletto. Okay? Stiletto. I think you need to go back to the drawing board because out of those three strategies that you identified, and you did this after meeting with 100 stakeholders, 490 survey responses, seven focus groups, 37 interviews, and 55,000 data points collected. And out of that, the two companies who rated within that top list you gave, magazine. neither one of them fit within the economic development strategies for this region. Go back to the drawing board. So Stella. I would love, so my thing is, I don't know if it's in any of the attachments, but I think a, a good thing would to would be to request the raw data that they collected from the from the business owners. I would love to see what was actually told to them by business owners. Oh, I, I'd love to see We could do a two-hour show on that. Well, first of all, I'd love to see when this work was done. Right. Okay. Now, I mean, are they regurgitating something that that was produced by someone else? Now, or something I, I, else? I'm looking at your at the the the, the PowerPoint here, Joanne. So I'm just going to page one. Introduction. Yes. Right. 
Now, TUSD grads, introductions usually at the beginning. Now, wait, okay? let, let me just say this <laughs> yes, for, for our listeners. It's an attachment to Jan's memo that's dated March 3rd. And what it's labeled, it looks like a little PowerPoint, Economic Development Strategy 2023 to 2026. Okay? Pima County, Arizona. Okay, so now go they, ahead. they got the cute little picture. Now, they, they've learned not to always use the Fork Lorico dances, <laughs> yeah. right? So we got a picture of some fountain, okay? Yes. Now, what they didn't show you are the tree home. Homeless guys taking a dump in this thing, well, actually, right? They didn't show what, you that. What's really this, interesting okay. is the fountain has water in it. <laughs> because because the fountain never has water in it, okay? Be, and they purposely do not put water in there because the homeless bathe in there. Okay. So now, that's one misnomer. Now, I'm going to okay. turn the tables on you, uh, Ms. Filippo. okay? Teacher Filippo. When we look at the opening paragraph under the word introduction, right? Mm-hmm. The key word that I see that's bad here, the phrase, is the one that's in quotes. Can you read that to everyone? The three words are in quotes. The critical convener? Right. Okay. So this is the problem. They see themselves as the convener of economic development and business. And you know, I do want to say... That's wrong. Rex Scott Scott did say this. He, He asked a question and he said, wait a minute, all these other regions of the county have their own economic development plans. How are we making sure that we integrate what they're doing with ours? And this, this is a beautiful answer, and it's included in the memo. And it basically says, well, we've made sure that we include them in our responses. Hello? Ask a question, answer with a question. Yeah, I mean, it's, yes. it's a joke. Okay. okay. So now we see. So I just want to say this. When you say you're a convener. Yes. What that means, what that means is this. And I do want to tell you that the phrase convener is something that you're seeing in a lot of the Build Back Better Grant application. Uh, it's the new. Okay. Sh- it's the new shovel ready. The, what it is is it's two new phrases coming out. One, if you're a convener, because what the Build Back Better money is trying to do is to create these regional approaches. So what they'll ask you is, what is your ability to serve as a convener? Okay, you're seeing it show up here. The other is uh, what they're now asking is, what is the impact? Instead of looking at what are the outcomes, benchmarks, deliverables, the, what is the impact? So you're going to see a li- those two phrases show up more and more. The convener and the impact. I like uh, one of the definitions of convener is a senior trade union official that actually is in the workplace. But <laughs> <laughs> So here's the thing. They'll, they'll say convening. When they, I assume when they say it, they think they're bringing people together. That's they're their, they're, they're right? able to cold communication forms. So That's to not speak. their job. Their job is environment, right? What is the environment that businesses operate in? That's it. That's their job. They can't do it. They've been an F for at least 20 years on that, right? So... Again, unsafe environment, right? Back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Education's in the toilet, right? Not an educated workforce. Safety. Right? Safety. Infrastructure's hell. Oh, oh my God. Just drive down I-10 going through the main part. Like, uh, it's atrocious. I have to hang onto my steering wheel. And when Joe and I first started the show, we would say that one of the things that was a problem in Pima County and Tucson was it, the, it is an unfair playing field right? It's not a level playing field for all businesses to establish their businesses and grow their businesses. Well, here. you can see, you can right? see because that. it's all about who, you know, yes, still to this day. Yes. Look at worldview. Look at the battery folks. Look at all these people. And don't it's about who, be- you know, so Carrie Lake, 
that interview with me and McCluskey and her is looking so good. Better and better every day. Um, she's at CPAC, at the same CPAC that voted for 62% of the attendees think Donald Trump should be the presidential candidate, which, of course, I said, you know, CPAC, um, uh, where we would love to win the primary and get our butts kicked in the... 62% of them want to win the primary and lose the general, right? When you vote, when you say, Donald Trump's our guy. So Carrie was at CPAC, and she said this. And they may think that they won, but I know they're feeling the heat. They're, they're actually, we've got them in the frying pan right now. Mm. This is true. Mm. And I know, I, I'm going to tell you why. Two now, claps. I, I can't believe this actually happened, and I wasn't sure if I was going to share oh. it here at CPAC. No, don't share it, Carrie. I wonder if Carrie. the fake news will even cover this. Oh, Something happened zinger. to me this week before I left for CPAC, and it shows how desperate these people are to stop me and to silence you. Mm. I decided to share this. It's a little bit controversial, but I'm going to put this out. Oh, controversial. Somebody showed up at my door oh. this week. They called me before and said, they got, I got, they got through your gated person. community in Paradise Valley, phone, which is always kind of like, uh oh, what's that going to be about? Yeah. <laughs> they came to my door and they tried to bribe me out of getting out of politics. Oh, no, don't let them rob really you of happened. us. I'm telling you this because this is how disgusting politics is. A mom who runs for office and they're afraid She's a mom of me. Now. They tried to bribe me with a job title, with a huge salary, a position on a board. This is how sec. they do it. Now she's a mom. Now. When she saw she got her butt kicked by suburban moms who wanted nothing, no part of her. Because before, I'm a big fighter. I'm a big conservative icon. I told the news, go to hell. I like how she said she left her big high-paying job. Are you sure they just weren't going to renew your renew your contract? That, that 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 that's something I would love to know from what you work for Fox fifteen or whatever Fox ten or something in Phoenix. I would love to know was Carrie Lake at the end of her contract anyway, and they weren't going to renew it. So she said, "Hey, can we do a deal? Can I come out and go fake news? I'm quitting the biz. I'm quitting it. There's no one who can replace me on the news." There's only like 27 other women who look exactly and sound exactly like me in the in network news right now. I'm one of a kind. So I love that the idea that something kind of something they probably told her in July, which is, hey, you should probably refer to yourself as a mom and you know gain some empathy with the moms. That'd be good. So all right, Matt, let's let's give me some more. Car- I need more Carrie. I need mom more. who runs for office and oh, they're afraid perfect. of me. <sighs> they tried to bribe me. We're with afraid the job of title. you. With a huge salary, a position on a board. This is how they do it. And I said, are you kidding me? I walked away from a big job and a big salary. I'm not motivated by that stuff, guys. What was the big job? I'm not. Oh, being a, a broadcast, a newsreader? So this person standing before me was sent at the request of some powerful people back east. <laughs> I got the, the air quotes, powerful people. From back east? Wait a minute. Oh, stop for a sec. I thought they already stopped us. Why are they... <laughs> this sounds like Lucy Van Pelt talking about Christmas. Remember, it's big business from some big syndicate back east. That's what it sounds like. It's true. Charlie Brown, everyone knows Christmas is controlled by a big syndicate back east. I mean, are you really taking your your speech lines from Lucy Van Pelt? I already had a big job. So here's the thing. Remember, you're going to get a job and a spot on a board. Is it the same board or is that a different board? You're going to get the job and the board at a different... What, what, what does that mean? I mean, all you got to do is pay attention a little bit to how she talks. 
The responses on Twitter to this are amazing. There's the picture of Sean Connery played by Chris Hammond and SNL Jeopardy saying, I'll take, uh, you're making up crap for 500, Alex. All right, give me some more, Carrie. I, I, wanna, I just want to like, I wanna get they all Patriot and run through a wall politics. for her. Oh. Well, wait a minute. I thought they already stopped us. Why are they so afraid? I thought they already stopped our movement. So She got so, one clap at, at, oh, here we go. I thought they stopped our movement. I didn't know Carrie had a movement. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just on God's time right now. Oh. And when I said no to this person, they didn't take no for an answer. They said, well, what will it take? Mm. What is your price? How do we keep you out? Name your price. No. This really happened this week. It really did. Name your price. All we're asking for you to do <laughs> is to get out of politics for two years. Okay. CPAC, I got to ask you, do you think I should sit out for two years? Yes. Should we put 20. our movement on ice for two years? You don't have a movement. I didn't think so. Or uh. should we double down and stay in this? Double down. <laughs> now, I'm going to be honest. At that very moment, I, I wanted to sick my dog on him. But I have a pug and it wasn't going to happen. So I said, you let your handlers back east know <laughs> that I can't name a price because there is no price that I would sell out my country for. No, they didn't ask you to sell out your country. They just didn't want you running for office again. Not a million dollars, not $10 million, not a hundred million dollars. I love you right back. Oh, better but husband. But I'll tell you, this tells me that they do not want my name on a ballot again. And I have me a message. Too. I'm not going anywhere. Oh. I'm not going anywhere. And so that got me very fired up. I was packing for CPAC, and this happened, and I'm like, I'm so fired up. And then after this weekend at CPAC, CPAC has a way of firing All us right. again, right? Let's go to break, and we'll and come back. We're running late. That's hilarious. That is possibly one of the funniest things I've heard. They want me out for two years, and then I'm good. The specificity of it was interesting. <laughs> So you know what it reminded me of? I thought about this. One of our favorite Dana Carvey impressions, which is Ross Perot, right? So remember Ross was dropping out. This is a 92, right? He's like, oh, Larry, I'm out again, right? But he tells the story of how Bush hired the ex-CAA guy to wiretap the, wiretap the computerized stock trading program, but also... Uh, fake a photo of his daughter and then conspiring to disrupt her wedding. Remember that? Now, see, I was sending a guy and he was going to steal the cake and then during the wedding and then you know, we were going to give some wedding favors out and then what happened was Bush sent the CIA in, right? And I, that's what I felt like with Carrie, right? I felt like uh, Ross Perot. You know, they came to my door. They just knocked right on my door. And they said, you know, Carrie, we want you out of the race just for two years. Two years. They're going to stop me. I'm, you know, I'm just a mom. I haven't done anything. I'm just a peaceful old mom. So, you know, I thought they want me out of the race. I'm back in the race. I don't know what race it is, but I'm in the race. I mean, this, this is what I, I felt like. I went right to Dana Carvey, Ross Perot, listening to Carrie Lake. You know, there's not going to my dog. Didn't get my, I was going to have my dog bite him, but he's a pug. You know? Back in the race, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> right? This want me out for two years. 
They're going to give me a big, huge job. Lots of money. And you know something? They're going to give me a space on the board. They'll see it on the board. I said, you know something? Not $5 million, not $10 million. Now, you are full of yourself. I mean, the ego, all right, the ego of Carrie Lake that says someone who doesn't want her to run, okay, is equal to betraying the United States. Now, Larry, I'm not going to betray my country by not running for office. Some people want to betray the country. They want to, you know, that's like treason. They hang you for that stuff. But not me. Not me, Larry. They came in. An old pug dog tugboat. That's what I call him, a pug. He went up and I was going to say, hey, watch about it, but you're just a pug. You barely, have a, you barely have a snout. You got little nose holes in your little round head. And you got those buggy looking eyes, Larry. Right? So, yeah, and I got that one guy that says, I love you, Carrie. I love you, too. We're not, stop- We're not stopping my movement. I don't know what kind of movement I have, but I got a movement. Some people got vowel movements. I got vowel movements. That's with a V because I talk and I use vowels. A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. So I'm just telling you, Larry, no one's going to stop Carrie Lake from being in this race. I'm going to be in every race humanly possible. I'm going to run for Senate. I'm going to run for Mayor of Scottsdale. I'm going to run for Mayor of, uh, of Paradise Valley. I'm just a mom. I'm a mom with a movement. And you know what's going to happen? I'll be damned. If I don't run for office, and that not running for office is the equivalent of treason against this United States of America. So that's where we're at, Larry. They can't stop us. Can't stop the can't stop the mom movement. Even all the mom Oh, I just want to tell you out there. Anyone who supported John McCain, he's a jackass. That's not gonna hurt me with anyone that's a Maricopa County donor. Ninety seven percent of them are on the John McCain old John McCain campaign finance reports. Why don't you want to give me any money? Oh, because I said your your guy that you were friends with who did favors with you, he was a jackass. Is that why, Larry? Don't want to betray the country, Larry. So Matt asked me this question. Eastside Matt, not Matt Neely. This is a different Matt, right? And so there's two things here, right? Is one, there is this RTA thing, okay? So what they want to do is... As part of the redo of RTA, right, there's an intergovernmental agreement on the agenda. I assume this is for tonight's meeting. 530. Intergovernmental agreement with Regional Transportation Authority for First Avenue relating authorizing approving an IGA for transportation funding between City of Tucson RTA for the First Avenue Grant Road to River Road improvement projects and this is the magic word that you're going to hear a lot and declaring an emergency. So what we're seeing here, Matthew, is they want to do a they're going to do a smaller project, right? Because of the way the numbers don't work, right? So four as you four lanes is the new six lanes. Four lanes is the new six lanes. <laughs> they say that it'll accomplish all the goals. If you look at uh, the two uh, documents that I think uh, Eastside Matt might have attached to that, right? It uh, actually said that uh, according to our math, the throughput of four lanes is equal to the throughput of six lanes. The findings of the assessment indicates the corridor functionality promised to voters in 2006 can be met with a four-lane corridor and can do so at a lower cost with less impact to residences and businesses. Sure. It's like... uh, Are we supposed to really believe that? And if you scroll up just a little bit in italics, it says exactly what was on the thing that Tucson voters voted yes on. Uh, Oh, in the email. 
in the uh, yeah or in the email or in the uh, one of the attachments the city documentation it said uh, let's see here um let's see uh, oh, i'm looking at the wrong document for god's sakes here we go um First grant. Burr, burr. Sorry, I should have had this. Uh, no, it's okay. Oh, it says, it says okay, it's described in the RTA plan, First Avenue, River Road to Grant Road, widened to six-lane corridor, bike lanes, and sidewalks. That's what it says, and that's what they voted Specifically, on. Specifically, six lanes. It doesn't say a certain throughput of traffic or a certain volume of traffic. It says six lanes. So what we're saying is, so, so what we're saying is, is that the city of Tucson is actually violating the RTA. That's if, what it sure sounds like to me. If you think that the RTA plan that was presented to voters, like if you vote yes, this is what you will get. Yep, right. Right. So it's can, like if you go and you. So so the question is, what are the mechanisms to thwart the will of the voters from the original RTA vote legally? Is it just a vote of the RTA board? Because it's not the vote of the city of Tucson. They're just. This is just we're taking the money. Correct. Right. So in the end, I got to ask. Well, I just had Murphy on the show, but anyway. Uh, I got to ask Mayor Ed or Ted on what are we dealing with here, right? Why or Mr. Mogimi. Or, 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 or Farhad, you're correct. So then the other one you have here is about uh, differential water rates. That was interesting. All right. So what they're doing is they've realized they got a bunch of money uh, that's coming in. Looks like it's, they're going to realize an extra 10 mil, I think. In- Incredible. 10 million bucks. So you guys are, you the people who are getting un, unfairly popped by the Tucson water differential rate, Mm-mm-mm. you're already throwing 10 extra million dollars for them to waste. You think they're going to put that towards cops, parks? Chris, they said or, they were going to use it to offset other people's water rates inside the city. They said that. And they haven't lowered everyone else's rate yet? Is that what you're telling well, me? Well, they're, they're paying some people's water bills for Oh, them. of course. Of course. But what they found out is they made a little bit of a mistake because there's a variety of customers who are the government, right? And mm-hmm. so they've pissed those people off, I assume. It was a kind of half-baked plan, it seems like. They didn't think it through. So what they want to do is what they want to exempt the uh, the governmental, the T- TUSD, Pima County, the state of Arizona, and the tribes. And the United States government. And the United States government. And the... The write-up said. Um, the write-up said that. Uh, oh, by the way, <laughs> Tucson's in- water infrastructure crosses through all those entities in, in many cases, and-, and they're not paying for it. So I'm sure all these entities are saying, "Hey, why are you charging us more? We're giving you free right-of-way for your infrastructure." Correct. Uh, and the bottom line is, another half-baked idea. A year later, they got to do some cleanup on it because they forgot. They didn't think it through. Another half-baked idea on this. Differential rate thing. No one's ever accused the city of Tucson of having the A-team, okay? Uh, Legal consideration, this is in their own document, applies retroactively to December 1. So they're going to get, they're going to have to kick back some money to these different government entities. Now this is, because it's not a rate increase, it's not subject to the procedures for adoptions of water rate increases established by Arizona law. Okay, so then at the end of 70% of these different um, agenda items, just like I read in the last part, declaring an emergency. So if you look through the agenda, like you said, about 70%, several of the items, more than half, include, end with the word, and declare an emergency. So on the the, um, First Avenue project that said, whereas it is necessary for the preservation of the peace, health, and safety of the city of Tucson, that this resolution 
this is the first avenue project become immediately effective an emergency is hereby declared to exist and this resolution shall be effective immediately upon a passage so the preservation of peace health and safety of the city of tucson so they are blanketing everything they do on their agenda that it's in the name of peace health and safety of the city of tucson including declaring that the September election is going to be a vote by mail election, the city election. So what is so declaring an emergency to me does two things that always, that always keeps them open for some sort of rules, fe- fe- right? Circumvent rules is number one, right? And number two is uh, for certain things, I assume possibly that could qualify you for some back end federal money when you're in. Sure. A, of so, but that's a, so here's a question to ask, like maybe when Regina or Pablo Slovakia goes on Bert Lee's show, right? Ask them, why are we declaring an emergency for almost everything on all? I've never seen business. that before. There's no other municipality that ever has ever done that, that, that often Chuck would do it when he needed it at the County, but I don't see this at Marana Oral Valley and Sarita where they're putting and declaring an emergency after everything. That sounds like an abuse of a declaring an emergency. Let's go to us Congressman Andy Biggs. Andy, good morning, sir. Hey, good morning, Chris. Good to be with you. Uh, so let's start in the world of oversight. Um, I was looking at your, uh, your, your tweet here about hearings on COVID origins, border crisis, energy crisis, uh, AI, OPM, inflation, waste fraud, and Biden family investigation. And it sounds like you're part of the, well, one of the things you're doing is the Biden family investigation, uh, hearings. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, uh, eight hearings in oversight this week. Four in judiciary, all dealing with um, just a myriad of problems. I mean, just when you start going down the list, and I'm thinking, well, he didn't mention China. Oh. He didn't. Men- <laughs> he didn't mention Ukraine. He didn't mention budget. Didn't mention debt ceiling. Did you know? I mean, you start thinking about it, and you realize it's such a target-rich environment uh, with what's gone wrong under the Biden uh, very, very, very managed uh, crisis uh, of the Biden administration. That you go, well, okay. So yeah, a lot of lot of involvement, a lot of hearings, uh, uh, a lot of uh, late nights uh, studying. So, is there something in the uh, Hunter Biden? What's any new revelations that you know? Not not all the zillion of other revelations that was ignored by the press for all these these years. Anything uh, new developments in that world? Well, where we're, where we're starting <laughs> is with these. <laughs> I mean, I another mean, another target rich environment. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, you could spend your whole congressional, you could spend years in in Congress uh, re- reviewing Hunter Biden. But look, we're, we're focusing right now on suspicious uh, uh, his suspicious activities reports that were given to the Department of Treasury, um, and so we've subpoenaed in these these banks and whatnot because they're the ones that wrote the reports. So we're going to try to get at the reports because Treasury won't give them to us. So we're, we're laying the groundwork to hold these guys in contempt. Um, and so, but why won't they give us the reports? They changed, I, I want, everybody needs to understand, they changed, the Treasury changed the rules after Biden was uh, put into office because they, Hunter Biden had over 150 suspicious activity reports uh, from various banks given to the Department of Treasury. Now we have we have two of those that were leaked to us by whistleblowers, and uh, they they're pretty damning. And 
And so, are these the same people? Are these the same people that want like a seventy-three-year-old because they're moving more than ten thousand dollars out of their bank to yes. fi- to fill out a special piece of paper? Yes. Well, actually, in, and they want to track you if you if it's over three thousand or five hundred bucks or whatever <laughs> it is. Right. Now. They really want to they want to know. But when when Hunter Biden is is receiving one hundred and sixty-seven thousand dollars a month from a Ukrainian oil and gas company where he has no experience, he's on the board of directors, and that company actually was under investigation by the attorney general of Ukraine until uh, Joe Biden demanded uh, that the previous president, Borchenko, of of Ukraine fire that attorney general, uh, or or he was going to withhold a billion dollars of foreign aid to Ukraine. Well, guess what? Uh, It looks like there might have been some influence peddling going on there. And uh, that was reported, and and now we can't get Treasury to come clean, and we're going to press until we get these, and then because we think once once you have that, you start seeing the business, and you start seeing what what Jim Biden, who's the president's brother, was doing. You find out what Hunter was doing. You, all of these transactions are related. Um, then you get into Devin Archer. Um, and uh, you got Tony Bobolinsky, who's already testified that, yeah, Joe Biden was a partner in all this stuff. We think that it's going to show some pretty um, dramatic uh, information. And unlike, unlike the January 6th committee that just uh, crafted a narrative and just threw it out there, uh, even though they knew it was a lie, we're actually waiting until we get the evidence before we really go out and say, this is what the evidence is this is why we reached the conclusion we suspect but we don't have all the evidence that we need which is why we're holding the hearings so when i see the yelling at the top of their lungs the pearl clutching of chuck schumer mitch mcconnell don lemon uh joe scarborough and friends about the forty thousand hours that mccarthy gave to tucker that really looks like he's over the target doesn't it yeah, I think it does. I mean, I, I keep saying this is the this is the yin yang. So you had you had just a portion of it. The the, the lefts and the Democrats crafted narrative that was the yin, and now you've got uh, uh, Tucker that's bringing out the other half of the whole, which is the yang. And then what what will happen is then when you get the yin yang together, you get the truth. And when the truth comes out, you're going to find out that yes, it was complex. You had some yo yos. Who, who were committing crimes, they were violent, attacking uh, police, and then you had others that weren't. And, um, and so what does that mean? It means there was no armed insurrection. The only arms that they had were their right arm and their left arm. And then the, uh, the insurrection was a riot. It was not an, an attempted overthrow of the government, contrary to what Mr. Raskin, Schiff, uh, Pelosi, Schumer, uh, Don Lemons of the world, Jealous Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, who's still crying about this. Um, he does not want this out. They don't want this out. They they simply do not want the truth out to the American people. Well, and the other part is is the rest of the press who's now jealous that they're all upset that they didn't get to see the 40,000 because in the previous yes. year and a half, they never asked for the other 40,000. Yeah, no, they didn't want to know. They didn't want. They had their narrative. Okay, come on, man. They had this. They had their story. Come on, go easy on the on the left wing crazy uh, myopic, uh, you know, co conspirators. Uh, uh, and then the, then the Ninja yeah. Turtle, Mitch McConnell, yesterday said it was a bad. That was a bad thing too. That we're, uh, we're, we're, we're that McCarthy released this out there. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's uh, baffled by it. You know, it just you know, it's, it's so awful. Well, it, it gets it gets to the whole thing. Uh, and Trump was right when he said it's a deep state, right? I call it the Uniparty, or I call it I call it a uh, the Washington D.C. cartel. It's the cartels. It's the it's the co-op between the left wing media, the 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 K Street lobbyists, the uh, and the uh, and the people in power who don't care really what's going on. They just they just want to stay in power, and that's where Mc, Mc, Mitch McConnell is. And I got to be careful because, well, he's not going to sign uh, sign any of my bills over there anyway. He's in the minority, but. <laughs> But the but the reality is this guy uh, this guy is part and parcel of what is wrong with with American politics, American government, and and the direction that the country is going in. He's part and parcel. We have Matt Merrill here from Hands of Hope. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Thanks for having us on. And then we have two strapping uh, bicyclists, uh, cyclists. Excuse me. Uh, we have Rob Croft and Mark Gold. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Morning. Good morning, Chris. Uh, Matt, tell us what a Hands of Hope is for all the rookies out there. Yeah, Hands of Hope Tucson. We are a pregnancy medical center. We're located in the Tucson Medical Center Plaza. And we offer free pregnancy testing, um, uh, STI testing and treatment, and free ultrasound. So we answer to a medical director. Um, We're 200 steps from Planned Parenthood and 40 steps from another abortion clinic. And we are a resource to those facing unexpected pregnancy. We also offer free counseling services for those who have faced uh, pregnancy loss of any kind. And how long have you guys been around? We've been around for over 42 years. Yep. It's one of those things that's doing a lot of good work and the average bear doesn't know. So yep. that's why we do good things like this. And you you gentlemen are going to ride your bicycles across the country. So uh, where's where, when and where are you beginning and where are you ending? Well, we're going to start on the 13th of uh, this month, this coming Monday, and we're starting in San Diego. We're going to dip our wheels in the ocean in San Diego on Monday morning. Nice. And then we head out, and uh, we're looking at about a 65, 70-day adventure across the southern United States, ending in St. Augustine, Florida, and Jacksonville, and dip our wheels in the ocean on that side of the country. And you guys can follow along at Bike for Life Tucson.com. Uh, so let's talk about, before we get to the idea of you guys doing this, and we talked about how fun going through West Texas is going to be for you guys. God bless you. Uh, why is the work of Hands of Hope, we'll start with Mark, why is that work of Hands of Hope so important that you decided that you wanted to do this ride? Well, probably, I don't know, maybe back in, in the summer, uh, I wanted to you know, I wanted to do something. This this journey for me started probably when I was about 17, the junior in high school. Okay, tell me about and, it. And, uh, you know, that was right when Roe was handed down. And uh, and it just set, set me to thinking, you know, this just isn't right, what people are doing. And uh, so I've been conservative all my life as far as uh, that goes, you know. And uh, pretty much politically, you know, I voted. The only thing I've ever been able to do is vote the way I felt. I never was able to do anything that uh, that fulfill me other than voting the way I thought I should vote. And so I, I got... And that's the, not always very fulfilling. Yes. <laughs> well, nowadays. Uh, so uh, I just started thinking and I actually contacted... I mean, I knew I could ride a bike. I've been riding a bike for a long time. And uh, I just started thinking, what could I do? So uh, I actually contacted through email a couple of uh, different... Uh, pregnancy national pregnancy centers you know national right to life all that kind of stuff and no re- no response at all so I came home and uh, I told my wife I said 
uh, man, I'm just not getting any traction here. She said, well, call Hands of Hope. And I'd never heard of Hands of Hope. And this was in like October. And so I looked them up. I went on, went on, uh, online and looked at a little bit of what they were about. And I thought, man, this might work. So I went in, I actually went into Hands of Hope and the receptionist, I talked to the receptionist there and I got kind of my first glimpse of, of, uh, uh, man, this, this might work. We might be able to pull this off riding across the country. I, I want to go back. Um, 17 year old guy. Where'd you grow up? Germany, pretty, pretty much Germany. Uh, dad was worked for the government. Gotcha. He wasn't in the army or the air force or anything. He was in the air force, but at this time he just worked for the government. So, so why did Roe v. Wade even make a dent in the head of a 17 year old man in the eighties and seventies? Excuse me. Yeah. It hit the news. And, uh, and I started thinking about it. I don't know why it did, uh, but it did. And I just, it just didn't seem right to me. Why would anybody do this? Why would anybody actually kill in my opinion, their own flesh and blood. And that has stuck with me forever. And uh, so we, you know, talked to, eventually talked to Matt and he, he was receptive. It gave me more hope. Uh, eventually talked to Joni and uh, she gave me a lot of hope, CEO down there. And man, it's just taken off from then. It's been really, really good. We've raised a lot of money so far and uh, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to raise uh, $100,000 and uh, we just want to, we just want to help. We want to help women. And what's, what's been cool about this from talking to Matt and all the, the, the folks down at Hands of Hope, you know, a lot of people when they're faced with this, you know, I'm pregnant, I'm 18 years old or whatever. However, we're there. What am I going to do? You know, they got parents involved. They got the dad involved. They got so many things involved, and it's pretty traumatic. Sure. So we, what we want to do as we go across the country is make it aware to people that there's that there's there's hope, that there's help, and they don't have to do what maybe they're contemplating doing. They don't have to do that. So if we can if we can save one life, it'll be worth every stroke. Rob, how about you? What's your journey to this uh, bicycle race for hand, this bicycle trip? Excuse me, to uh, for Hands of Hope. Well, about I've been riding a bicycle my whole life <clears throat> uh, since I was a, a young kid and commuting on bicycle. And then about three years ago, I decided uh, I'd been dreaming a long time about doing a cross country bicycle ride. So about three years ago, I put together a plan and I did it. I went from San San Diego to. At that time, Savannah, Georgia, because the COVID hit and it was a crazy time to be on a bicycle out in the middle of nowhere. Right. But anyway, I did it, and and Mark uh, was a, a big well, fan. I of don't it. understand why. That's the ultimate in social distancing. Rob by himself, uh, fifty miles outside of Waco. That's, I mean, what's that's the, the difference? thing. That's the thing that kept me going. Except <laughs> some, except sometimes the sheriff, the sheriff in Texas would say, "Hey, you can't stay here tomorrow night in this campground." So <laughs> anyway. Love it point is is that uh i did and mark came out and rode with me the last day of the ride okay out there and so uh and he he took me out to start so anyway mark's been very involved with this all right so you guys have ridden together before yeah yeah and then uh, when mark um, uh, decided that uh, this was a passion for him uh, you know he's he's never done a bike ride like this before so he's put together kind of a team here a little bit of a team effort and my role is really i mean we've been buddies for since we were teenagers as well but my okay. role is really to kind of be a co and a mentor and uh, help plan and just kind of make sure that things happen. Gotcha. So how do, so when we talk about uh, sponsoring you guys, how does that work? Is that you just, people are just donating? Is it per mile? What, 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 how does this, how does this work? They just yeah. So what's, what is, 
the Hands of Hope people have been great. They've put together a website, bikeforlifetucson.com, and you can go there. You can read about everything that they do. And uh, so basically they're sponsoring us, uh, and you can read a little bit about Rob, read a little bit about me, uh, and then there's a place there that you, that you can actually donate uh, if you're so willing to do that. Gotcha. And, okay. Uh, so it's the sponsorship. Uh, man, I've been overwhelmed by the generosity of these folks. Absolutely. And it's made one of my dreams come true. And uh, Rob, you know, too. So, you know, we're, we're, we're excited about this. And it's starting to get real. Yeah, you know, it's, it's getting way damn real. Uh, so you've done this trip before, Rob. So let's talk about it. How do you break it down mentally, this this trip, right? It's not one big – Do you break? I assume you break it down in the kind of spiritual mental legs here. Well, that's true. And, and you know, the motivations are of various kinds and at different levels and so forth. But basically, when you're out on a bicycle like this, it becomes what you do. And you have to really find a way to get up every day and get the job done, get the miles in. Now, it's very nice to be able to love riding a bicycle, which I really do, and there's a zen about it, okay, when you're out there on the road, and and, and, and there's a simplicity about it that's very compelling as well. So uh, we've broken it down. We've got our, our route already all planned out. Now, you know that's not going to be the way it actually works because there's weather days, and there's sure. wind, and there's uh, health, and how you feel, and, and all of this. So well, the Western United States seem to clear up just at the right time for you guys to get through i'm we're we're looking forward to it yeah i mean it's a, it looks like things are warming up a little bit uh we're actually leaving a little bit later this year than i did three years ago we i left on march 1st but i think it's uh, good lord's been uh uh helping us figure this out with the weather by letting us go a little bit later awesome all right well um, congratulations on doing this thing it's a great thing you're doing it for and it's right in line with what we believe here at the show so ride hard ride well be safe we gotta we gotta stay calm and pedal on love it all right remember bikeforlifetucson.com to find out more about these gentlemen and their ride for hands of hope and of course you can help sponsor their trip across and raise money for hands of hope and of course more information about hands of hope at handsofhopetucson.org all right well matt thanks for bringing the boys by absolutely thank you for the opportunity and keep up the good work at hands of hope will do U.S. Congressman Juan Siscomani. Juan, good morning, sir. Good morning, Chris, Matt. Good to talk to you guys. So yesterday you uh, dropped your first bill uh, in the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives, and uh, it's something that's, uh, I know, near and dear to your heart and very near and dear to the heart of this community, which is has to do with the VA. What's uh, what, 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 what happened yesterday? Well, that's right, Chris. So first of all, thanks for having me on. I always appreciate talking to you guys. And you're right, we dropped our first bill, and you got the lingo right. You know, some people say introduce or something. I, I am, I'm learning up here, and it's dropping the bill. And you literally do. You go to the clerk, and, and you drop it in that, in that box there, which I did uh, personally. You don't always do that, but, but I got to do that as my first bill. And it's, uh, it's around an issue that is very near and dear to the hearts of, of pretty much our entire community because it's around, around veterans. And our veteran friends may know uh, this issue better than, than most people. And so I'll just quick background on it. This is they, they've been um, the, the, the bill pretty much covers and addresses uh, our veterans that are waiting too long to get their disability claims processed. Then uh, and that's obviously completely unacceptable. I've been meeting with a lot of veteran groups, both here in D.C. and also in the district. 
and this kept coming up. So we we looked into it. What was the the main issue and the the reason for this? We have over seventy thousand veterans in the district, over half a million in Arizona, and about seventy. I mean, seven thousand pending claims just in the Phoenix area alone. So when we started looking at all these numbers, that was that that was pretty frightening. Honestly, that that veterans have to wait this long to get their claims heard and processed. And the backlog was happening on the legal side of things with with attorneys on the staffing side. And there's a shortage of attorneys within the VA, and we needed to address that. So this bill incentivizes both law school students that are about to finish law school and entry-level attorneys, um, kind of like uh, um, uh, an apprenticeship uh, of sort, to be able to speed up the process and make these uh, uh, claims caught up and, and get rid of the backlog. And so that's what it addresses, and our veterans should be able to get their cases resolved uh, much quicker. So are we talking about them to qualify for the veterans' benefits, or I guess that that's what I'm, I'm missing here. Like, why, why, yeah. you know, so why do we need the lawyers on the other side than not just some sort of bureaucrat to figure out whether or not these men and women qualify for Benny's? Well, it's not only it's the benefit, but what they're looking at is uh, if the disability was a result of their service to our country. Right. And that is what needs to be determined um, because some of these disabilities come for other reasons. But but really, the ones that happen because of their service to the country, that's what the VA has to determine. So there is a, a process that goes there. And before they get any answer, they the waiting time could be up to years before they even you know get accepted or or not accepted into their disability claim. So what this does, this doesn't impact what the result would be, but it speeds up the process so they don't have to wait as long to get the news on this process. And hopefully, of course, they'll be uh, taken care of and they, they would get an approval. But that's up to the the investigation. And some of these are are the pretty um, technical in, in, in the sense, and that's why they need attorneys looking at this. And we just have a, a large shortage. So this is what that deals with. It, it pays internships for, for the law students and, and it also incentivizes the, the, the younger attorneys that want to go into. It's kind of like Teach for America, but, but on the attorney side. Um, so I guess, uh, so, you know, it, it has the level of benefits, people applying for benefits. I know that fluctuates year to year. Did we, did the federal government just not perceive the, a wave of veterans that need this service? Was there, you know, shrinkage in that area, which we never, you know, that's one place I would never cut stuff. How did we get to a point where people are waiting two or three years? Well, that's a great question. And, and really, we get to this point by several factors. One, uh, like in any other place, there's a, a shortage of workforce. Less attorneys have been uh, pursuing a career in this field. And at the same time, the claims have increased. So the, there was a law, the PACT Act, which means that the VA now must accept claims connected to respiratory illness and cancers that could be a result of the exposure to toxic burn pits and air pollution, uh, really since we started the, the war on terror in the early 2000s. In order to dispose of batteries or anything else, they were just burning them. And, and our military personnel was exposed to that. And since the PACT Act was passed, those claims are now accepted as well, and they, as they should be. So the, the, the claims and this, this new window of claims has opened at the same time that we, that we are having uh, staffing shortages and issues. So it's about to get worse if we don't do something about this. And that's why this program tackles the current issue, but it's also um, a problem-solving one looking into the future as, as the claims are for sure going to increase. 
And what, so the internship program, things change as they get through legislation, but this is basically a paid limited time internship for these. Yeah, so this is an in, mm-hmm. yeah, this is an internship for those that are in school, obviously until they're in school and the incentive for, so while they're in law school still, they get to be in this, they have to complete internships and some do it in law firms, some do it at the county or the city or in different places. Uh, they, this would be an opportunity for them to, to do this. And for working attorneys, there's, there's a, um, uh, a, a incentive as a stipend slash student loan uh, uh, forgiveness program of up to six years, 10,000 a year max, which obviously doesn't begin to cover the whole thing, especially on a, on a law school uh, loan if, if they're taking, but it is a bit of a bit of an incentive there for these young attorneys to be able to get their careers started here. And there are a lot of you know things attached to that. They have to maintain good standing with the bar and so on, or else that would be uh, required to pay the money back. But there, there, there's a lot of those stipulations, but the idea is to incentivize these young attorneys to start their careers here and, uh, and you know, serving those that serve our country. Uh, any co-sponsors on the bill? Yeah, we do. So this is a bipartisan bill, and I should have mentioned that at the beginning. Uh, Morgan McArvey, uh, he's a Democrat from Kentucky. He also serves on Veteran Affairs. He is uh, co-leading this uh, with me. We, we took the lead on it, and we wanted to make sure that it was clear that this was bipartisan. And so far, every colleague up here that I've talked to is very interested in, in supporting this. This has an opportunity to go all the way. This was something like this that was passed, an idea that was in this vein last year by the Senate. The House never picked it up. They ran out of time, uh, I was told. So we wanted to start it in the House this time, push it over to the Senate, and uh, this has the potential to go all the way. And right now in the divided government, there are um, fewer things than not that that can really make it all the way to the president's desk and he signs it. From what I'm looking into, this this has that opportunity. Don't want to claim victory yet a lot of work to do on both sides of the chamber but uh we we have a good opportunity here so then i see this one this is uh from bizjournals.com from the phoenix biz journal tempe based overnight oats gets a 20 million (laughs) dollars in a series a round of funding for them to build out a new fulfillment center to make overnight oats you can't get what's so amazing. I would have thought there was that kind of money, right? So what's amazing about their success, and it, and and really is uh, an an amazing example of human beings' laziness. Right, exactly. All right? They're so, making bank on because everybody's lazy. D. Simone loves overnight oats. Me too. It's All good. Right? So I have those little mason jar it's suckers. Really easy too. Right. I got those little jars, little jars like a mason jar. It's a blue glass with a little white plastic top. And what I do is I fill it up about two-thirds of the way with something called oats. Now, you could use regular milk. I'm sure I'll be derided by some of you uh, Neanderthals out there. I use almond milk, right? And then I fill it with almond milk. Uh, I might put a little cinnamon, maybe a little Mexican vanilla extract. And then I close it and I shake it up and I throw it in my fridge. And uh, I have that for breakfast with nanners and maybe some unsweetened peanut butter in the morning. Okay? It's Simone's go-to. Got to keep regular. Remember, old-fashioned oats. Do not use quick oats. Let your body break that stuff down. We don't need the machines breaking it down. You do it. Okay? So what's this guy's company? It's overnight oats in a package. First thing I thought... 
I mean, so he, he, this is Sheen goes by. And you still have to add milk to it and let it sit overnight. I'm guessing. No, I don't know. I'm I think, not knocking it. I, I think, think it's in there. Good for that. I think the milk's in there. I think this oh. is. I think this is a refrigerated product. Oh, okay, great. Right. So literally, you just open it up and eat it. Right. I mean, but literally, I just told you. Let me here, let, let, let me let me do it again for you. This is how you make overnight oats. Very complicated, so take notes. You take the container, you throw the oats in, you throw some sort of milk crap in it, and shake it up. Maybe a spoon or two of yogurt or some chia seeds, whatever chia you want. Chia seeds, that's another one, right? You can do that. And you shake it. That's how you make. So anyway, this... I hope everybody took notes because it's very complicated. God bless this guy because he just got $20 million. Did you that again? Is there... It's true. I, I think I got lost. No, that, so uh, now let me teach you the Escoffier way to do this okay you have to do mice so in place pierre or no, no, no mice in place so pierre escoffier i think he's pierre uh he said the way you make overnight oats is you take a container and you put the oats in it about two-thirds of the way and you fill it up with some sort of milk product maybe a chia seed you can do some pecans that's nice i do it at the end keep them crispy right a little drizzle of honey some if vanilla want, maybe i'm not a big fan of sugar but yes and you shake it up and you put it in the fridge overnight oats but what I'm saying is... I'm going to have to listen to the podcast to, <laughs> to, to get all those steps down. It's like whenever I put a picture of food I make, I always have those like two or three people like, where's the recipe, bro? And sometimes I don't have a recipe, but this is the recipe, okay? Well, I'll write it out later for everybody, okay? My head's spinning. Um, but this guy got $20 million from Sing Capital Partners, BFG, Impatient Ventures, Watchfire, Morrison Seeger Venture Capital Partners, and Vantera Ventures, okay? For oatmeal. We have a thing called the U of A startup tech center, all this jazz, right? And we can't get anything out of here. And the broski making oats is killing us. Killing us. It's not like he's doing stacked housing with containers or something. I, <laughs> that's another one. That was Stack House, right? Was the name of that company, right? Stack House. That's, like Jerry Stackhouse from the uh, no, the North Carolina. Would suggest. <laughs> I do want to uh, announce... Uh, in the past, Chris has done a Flying Aprons cooking class. I've taught how to do Italian food. Me and Juan did birria. We did a meatball class, but I'm happy to announce on Ma March 29th, Matt and I are going to be doing a Flying Aprons how to cook overnight oats class. So It'll only be $75. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's a 12-minute class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to make the best damn overnight oats you ever ate in your life. It's going to take a lot of work preparing for this class because I, 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 I think I'm starting to get the picture. But I'll talk to Janos and see if he can certify our recipe as a city of gastronomy overnight oat. That'd nice. Be, I mean, this town will buy anything. So U.S. Congressman Juan Siscomani. Juan, good morning, sir. Good morning. Chris, Matt, good talk to you guys. Do you, Morning. Do, do you know how to make overnight oats? This is one of your toughest questions I've ever asked you. No, but I'm pretty good at eating them. <laughs> I did get an email from Michelle at um, Flying Aprons. The cooking class that Matt and I are doing on March 29th for overnight oats is almost sold out which is amazing. So we've sold, uh, there's only, a, there's a 20 student limit on it. And Michelle says we're already at 18 of the 20 sold on Matt and Chris do overnight oats. So Matt says you can do dried cranberries as a real nice. So, and I did talk to, uh, I did talk to the city of gastronomy, Matt, and they will, uh, get in dispensation. We're, I think we're going to get a, a city of gastronomy certification on, uh, on our overnight oats. So as long as, um, we have one of our recipes 
uh, has some well, some sort of item locally in there. We can figure it out. So I'm sure we can find some some hipster you get some basil some, from your garden or something. Well, I was thinking there's got to be some hipster that has some sort of honey crap someplace. Now, if we want to guarantee a city of gastronomy uh, certification of our overnight oats class. Um, they said if we can do edible hashish and edible hashish in the uh, in the bre- in the in the overnight oats, sort of changes the nature of the recipe well, in the class. If we do the drugs in it, then the city of Tucson will fast track our certification. I mean, wow, we we we, we know how to scratch the city of Tucson. That belly. escalated quickly. <laughs> Remember on Friday we have uh, triple food Friday, uh, Inca Peruvian. Right, Fatima. Uh, the the boys from Vero's Italian Bakery and Matt and I on the air are going to make overnight oats. It's going to be wow. How do you do that again? Chef's kiss, baby. Well, let's get to Tucson national news. Uh, the principal Mark Ruben Tolls. Ruben Tolls. He has a he's a hyphen. Okay. You don't tolls nobody. Not bad. Not good either, but not bad. Didn't say uh, it was good. <laughs> uh, Mark Ruben Tolls of Orange Grove Middle School. That's that one right there where uh, Orange Grove meets Skyline, right over in that area. Sure. And the Cat Foothills uh, reminded teachers, um, let's see, uh, provided teachers and staff with a list of students' preferred pronouns, also specifically hiding, highlighting those that were not allowed to be shared with their parents. Email subject line reads, confidential list of students with student pronouns and preferred names different than in synergy. My brain hurts. Hurts. Yep. Uh, the principal, Mark Rubin Tolls, I'll keep saying his name over and over again, Mark Rubin Tolls, reminded teachers that some information can't be shared to the families. Writing, quote, teachers and staff, if you're like me, you may have been challenged recently to keep some of our kids' pronouns and preferred names straight and to remember what can and can't be shared with families. The email goes on to state, please be very careful. Students in red are are not comfortable with sharing information with their parents and guardians. This can be cognitively challenging. (laughs) It's our responsibility to protect student privacy in these matters. I watch too much British stuff. We say privacy. Oh, don't even hit the South Park privacy right now. Now... (laughs) I can if you need. (laughs) Meanwhile, Julie... Farbaric, far Farbaric, the director of alumni. She's got a she's got a diverse job. Director of alumni and community relations for Cat Foothill School District provided a statement prov- uh, saying that the state uh, the email does not represent district practices. Quote, this has never never been our practice in the district. We respect any student's preference on how they're addressed in school, be it nickname or pronoun request. However, as students are informed, if a parent were to inquire, our staff do not keep this information from parents. Furthermore, we encourage students to discuss these matters with their parents. She did authenticate the, fee- the email, saying, yes, the email with that subject line is authentic. It does not conform to our district's practice. The list should have not been created, and it no longer exists. Unquote. Wink, wink. Yeah, wink, wink. Um, meanwhile, Nicole Solas, who obtained the email, stated the school is being coy while admitting, quote, they keep secrets from parents until the parents ask if there are any secrets. Let's get Lawrence on the line real quick. Lawrence, we've got about two minutes or, or less. So what's up, my friend? Everybody who works in public education forgets 
that they don't work for themselves or the people at 1010. They work for the district, and the district is made up of parents. You work for the parents. You don't work for some other authority. I'm tired of these people keeping things from parents. As a parent, I would lose my mind and rake them over the coals. You've got to be kidding me. They forget. You work for the parents. And when I have parent-teacher conferences, I tell the parents, you know, we will, people are forgetting. We work for you guys, the public, the people that pay our taxes and elect our people to the school board. Uh, it, it makes me sick as a teacher to hear that nonsense. What's going on? Well, uh, what's going on in TUSD with preferred pronouns? Oh, I don't know. I call everybody by the first name. So, I'm not going to be playing that game. Uh, don't, don't insult my intelligence by telling me to use a pronoun inappropriately. I went to school to become educated and to learn how to speak like a professional and speak like educa- an educated person. I'm not going to sit there and sound like a fool. Amen. You know? Hey, uh, real quick. So on Thursday, uh, Dr. Trujillo is making his triumphant return on the uh, on the show. So uh, if anyone has any questions, I've already gotten two emails from TUSD teachers who have questions for that. I'm going to ask Dr. Trujillo. So um, I'll, I'll send you mine. I okay. don't want to share. But, I agree. All right. You have a great day. You too, my friend. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. David Schweikert calling uh, here. David, good morning, sir. Good morning. I, forgive me if the are the acoustics really bad. I'm in a small booth behind the Ways and Means room. I've heard worse from you, so this is not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. Uh, I want to torture you a little bit because I love you so much. Um, this is. Well, you only hurt the one you love. <laughs> um, Joe Biden's op-ed in the New York Times of his exp- his uh, plan to extend Medicare for another generation. Yeah. Um, okay, you first understand the, the, the first part of the boldface lie. <laughs> the trust fund is only 25% or so of Medicare spending. It's the part A. The other parts come directly out of the general fund. Um so okay, you're gonna you're you're going to basically add another five percent on capital gains. You're gonna do all these other unrealized. The funny one is how you're gonna tax, tax unrealized capital gains. Um, are you gonna tax unrealized capital losses? I mean, it, the the, it, it, right. the Democrat mantra: of we hate the rich, we're gonna tax them. Let's say we agree. Okay, go ahead and do it. Um, you only covered a tiny bit of the debt problem. The other three quarters of Medicare spending that come under the general fund, you, you didn't change any revenue stream for that. And then in nine years, the Social Security Trust Fund is gone. Oh, and by the way, also is the Transportation Trust Fund gone. So I, I want to pass a couple of statements from this piece past you, which was, of course, written by flunkies and put Joe's name on it. Um let me ask you the, the the truthfulness of these statements. The ACA embraced smart reforms to make the healthcare system more efficient while improving Medicare coverage for seniors. What do you think of that statement? Simple math. Did, did healthcare um, did healthcare inflation go back to? Remember, we were promised it was with all these things the ACA was going to do. It was going to move healthcare inflation to the mean of all other inflation. Instead, it runs at more than double. Correct. Over the last decade, more than double. All right. Look, it's basic proof. It it didn't do any of the things it promised. All right. So there's uh, five Pinocchios there. 
the Inflation Reduction Act ended the absurd ban on Medicare negotiating lower drug prices, requiring drug companies to pay rebates to Medicare if they increase prices faster than inflation and cap seniors' total prescription costs, saving seniors thousands of dollars a year. This negotiation, combined with the law's rebates, will reduce the deficit by $159 billion. Over 10 years is their claim. And so far, it's not working. Um, remember, the, um, the function of the price capping that the Democrats are trying to do is on a very limited number of drugs. And so even this morning, which should just enrage all of us, Republican and Democrat, is what you see is the the natural outcome. Um, Many of the drug manufacturers or pharmaceutical manufacturers have been just shifting their price structures. So they're now raising the price of their new entries because their existing entries are the ones that get the price negotiation. They've just shifted. Um, So the total spend may now actually have gone up and not come down. Next one. Um, significant slowdown in growth of healthcare spending since the ACA was passed. In the decade after the ACA, Medicare spent $1 trillion less than the nonpartisan CBO projected before ACA reforms were in place. Yeah, um, that's new to me. <laughs> that's absolutely new to me. And, 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 and do understand, there's some really weird distortions in our Medicare spend numbers. Um, during the pandemic, we had so many Medicare recipients who actually postponed healthcare treatments for a year, two years. Sure. And now all of a sudden they're coming in and they're coming in thicker. So um, if you actually look at one of my graphs, there's this weird flat flattening out. And now all of a sudden there's this pop and Democrats were trying to take credit of that flattening out. But part of that flattening out was people couldn't get appointments. Or there you was know, um, so many medical facilities said, you know, you need to stay at home. You know, your cancer's not growing that fast. <laughs> so, like here in Arizona, when um, when Ducey uh, said we're not going to do elective surgeries, there were so many people not who just decided that, to delay their health care because they thought they couldn't get yeah. it or whatever, right? Sure. But but those numbers were big enough that we actually see this as a distortion. So, it is it even ethical for a budget person to try to take credit, saying, "Look, I lowered the price." No, what you did is you postponed it. Correct. You postponed the spending. You, 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 it's a timing effect. And then this one, uh, this is my last one I'm going to torture you with. Uh, in 2009, before the ACA, uh, it was projected that the Medicare trust fund would be exhausted in 2017. Their later, uh, latest projection is 2028, but we should do better that and extend it beyond 2050. So when you hear the fact that because of this wonderfulness, that's what changed the, the trust fund from being exhausted in 17 to 2028. Yeah, but did you take credit for the 3.8% um, tax surcharge that was done 10 years ago that was the funding mechanism for that extension? So, you know, we just raised taxes. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, and, now, and, now, and now we're going to take that up even higher. Um, it, it, it's, it's back to the fundamental discussion. The Democrats want to subsidize things and uh, on, at least for myself i want to disrupt the price we will because there's no way we can generate ever enough tax revenues we can take the wealth of every really rich person and it still does not cover these shortfalls there's these shortfalls are stunning in their size you need a disruption in the actual cost but because of unionized nurses unionize this unionize that 
uh, you'll have conversations and they're just terrified to say, we're going to inject technology and competition into these medical services. We're uh, hanging out with Dr. Uh, Hans A. Von Spakowski. Hans, welcome back, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me back. So what should be, let's start on the state level right now. State level, right. what should every state have in place as part of their rules, laws, and regulations of voting to mitigate all these uh, thing, all of these cases of fraud that you guys have been charting over the years? It's a whole series of steps, and um, uh, I'll give you just a few of them, but boy, if you want to know uh, what your state should be doing, uh, the Heritage Foundation has produced an election integrity scorecard that scores every state. And we have 47 different criteria that we use to judge the state. So it's a whole series of things. First of all, obviously, you should require an ID to vote, whether it's in person Racist. or through, through absentee ballot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except that the public, the entire public, no matter their race, agrees with that. The yep. polling on this is very clear. Um, you should not allow vote trafficking. And the left likes to call it vote harvesting because that sounds good. But vote trafficking is when you allow <laughs> complete strangers to pick up folks' absentee ballots at their homes and offer to deliver them. Well, the problem with that is that uh, you don't know whether uh, they will change your ballot. Perhaps they'll discard it. Uh, the, the 2018 case in North Carolina, that's what they were doing. They were picking up the absentee ballots and then changing them. Um, plus, it puts you know, party activists and others in a position to coerce and pressure the voters in their homes, something they can't do in a polling place. Um, the, the biggest thing is making sure you've got accurate voter rolls so that you don't have people, for example, who uh, live in, used to live in Arizona, but moved to California, got registered there and, and remain registered in both states and vote in both states. And for folks who think that doesn't happen, in fact, several of the cases that we just added to our database uh, at the Heritage Foundation are, in fact, individuals who were registered in two different states um, and took advantage of that by voting twice uh, in, in the election. Like I said, it's a, there's a whole series of things like that that need to be done. Look, one of the most obvious things, and this is, doesn't take legislation, this just takes election officials doing a better job is, look, most county election officials, when they get a voter registration. They just take the data and it, put it in the computer and boom, they mail out a voter card. Well, they shouldn't be doing it that that quickly, that easily. Um, they should be checking, for example, with the county tax department. Uh, look, what Chris, you and I both know, what's the biggest priority of county governments all over the country? It's collecting property taxes, right? Correct. That's, that's how they that's how they fund everything. What that means is, is, that the, is that the county tax department, they know every piece of property in a county. They know what it is. They know whether it's residential, industrial. They know what kind of building is on it. So when a county election officials get in a voter registration, they should check the address the voter claims they live at with the county tax department. Because if the county tax department comes back and says, well, that's not a residential property. That's, a, that's an industrial property. It's a factory then they immediately know uh, there's a potential problem with this. They need to investigate it. Or let's say the county tax department comes back and says, no, no, it's a residential property. Uh, it's a single-family home. Well, the next step of the county election official should be to check, well, how many people are already registered at that single-family home? Amen. Because, because if there are 100 people registered at a single-family home, 
uh, there's clearly fraud going on. And for anybody, again, who thinks that kind of thing doesn't happen, um, we had an event recently at Heritage with Senator Paul Betancourt. He's a Texas senator, former uh, county election official in Houston, and he said that at one point they found a single-family home that had almost 600 people registered to vote there. And in, the, in, in one of the elections, 170 of them cast ballots. Now, that was clearly fraud. Yeah. The, uh, I'm looking at the, the, the scorecard right now. Uh, you just, just Google Heritage Foundation Election Integrity Scorecard. It pops right up. Arizona uh, scored a 64 out of 100 points, which makes it tied for 20th with the Granite State of New Hampshire. Yeah. So, no, no state in the country scored 100. The best state in the country scored in the low 80s, which means that they're better, but they still haven't done everything they ought to be doing. Because, you know, we kept on hearing with Florida, right, that they ch- they, they, they changed uh, some stuff over the last couple of years, and, like, they can get all their voting tabulation done in one, counting in one night, and Arizona takes, you know, 20 days. Yes, they have made, they made, they were so, Florida was so embarrassed but why, by what happened in the 2000 election that they actually made a tremendous improvement in their elections. Um, again, they're not, they're still not perfect, but they're now one of the top states in the country in, in terms of how they run their elections. Yeah, they're number six with a score of 78. Tennessee is the highest at 84. Matt has a quick question from a listener, and then I know we're going to run sure. out of time. So what's your question, Matthew? There's just, uh, how can you tell with renters, should the, should the county follow up with, with the landlord? That was the nature of the question. Gotcha. Well, look, if a renter is uh, living at a property and then that's their residence, well, then they're they're entitled to vote there. Uh, they, there's nothing that prevents the renter from registering and voting at that address. The problem is if you check somebody, and these are literal cases, you know, if somebody is registered to vote and they claim their um their home is a basketball court in a park, then you know there's a potential problem there. Gotcha. Well, Hans, great job as always. We could talk for another, you know, two hours on this, but we won't. But great job. I love what you guys do, and uh, we'll, we'll have to keep up the conversation over time, okay? Sure. Happy to do it anytime. Thank you, my friend. Have a good day. Goodbye. That's Hans A. von Spakowski from the Heritage Foundation. Always good. And uh, we've been talking to Hans for years. I will, if you want a copy, I can send it to you. Wake up Tucson comments at gmail.com. I'll put it up on Facebook. It's the scorecard for election integrity for all 50 states. We have our friend Raina here from Shish Kebab House. Good morning, young lady. Good morning, everyone. Mark, you're a big shish kebabber yourself. Oh, I love it. Uh, every time we're on that side of the city, wherever, my wife always goes, we got to go to shish kebab house. Oh, Absolutely. thank you so much oh, for patronizing. Yeah, it's wonderful. What's your go-tos uh, over there? Baba ganoush. <laughs> Baba ganoush. <laughs> now, we, we call it motabal. Motabal. Motabal, the Palestinians and Jordanians, they call it motabal. Okay. And I think in the Israelis, too, they call it motabal, but more like a Lebanese, Syria, they call it Baba ganoush. Okay. Because the mul- yeah. uh, we were just talking about your bol- your multiball is the best eggplant spread. It I'm really gonna, is. I'm going to go big and bold here, at least in the s- entire state of Arizona. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and it's not because I love <laughs> you. Because it really is. Thank you. Because the because there's it's just not the pureed eggplant. You're you're putting. I don't want to give away the, the trade oh, secrets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it has a texture and a flavor that just. Oh, it's a whole, we we whole try we try to keep the same flavor, the same way. I learned how to do it with my mother-in-law. So. 
And yeah. so, so shish kebab, you know, it's Mediterranean, but really it's Jordanian, it's right? It's Jordanian cuisine, right? Mainly Jordanian, yeah. What are some things in the world of the Jordanian cuisine that I would get at shish kebab that I wouldn't get at a other Mediterranean restaurant in Arizona? Oh my God, mensaf, <laughs> mensaf and maglube. Those are the traditional meals for the Jordanians. They do it in a big weddings and. They go crazy, you know, making a lot of food. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm Italian. We know. Uh, we I recognize this. You know, you this. know, you know that. Uh, so explain those dishes. What are what, what 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 are the components of those dishes? Okay, so the mensa, what it is, is a Bedouin dish that they, you know, people in the desert they dry the camel milk. Ah. Uh. They dry it. So what they do after a while you know they put it like for three days to get uh, liquefied and then you blend it until it comes like a cream mm. and then you cook it for three hours with a lot of lamb and it's one of their meal that they are so proud of it nobody wow. else does it in Jordanians wow. yeah what's the one that's like the mountain man dish what's oh, that oh my god that's <laughs> Actually, we create that. <laughs> I usually don't think of mountains in Jordan. But. No, no, they're in Bali, but no mountains. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the really good. What it is is um, chicken, and we cook it with, uh, you know, onions, uh, bell peppers, a lot of garlic, and then we add tomato sauce to the rice. And it's really delicious meal. Hmm. And this, it's similar to the capsa. Capsa is like a Saudi dish. But we do it too. Interesting. Yeah. This this is that the one that comes on the sizzling skillet kind of thing, or that's no? Different? That's the cheese kebab special that we do with a little bit of hot sauce. Yeah. I'm I'm just I'm yeah. just uh, interested. What 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 is a typical Jordanian breakfast? What do they oh have when God. they get up? Typical Jordanian breakfast, you're gonna find full. It's a fava beans. Right. Actually, some part of Italia they eat full because I have some Italian people that just come for that. Sure. Oh, uh, interesting. I can't forget it from what part they told me that they are crazy. One day they had a like party and I had to make a big batch of food for them. They say we eat this in northern Italia. Hmm. I forgot the city. Okay. But Very yeah, cool. they eat full falafel, hummus, the baba ganoush, and lepne. Lepne huh. is, uh, some people call it kafir. Okay. The Iranian, okay. they call it kafir. It's okay. good for your probiotic. It's good for your gut. Sure. Oh, yeah. so it's like yogurt. It's yeah. Like, yeah. It's like yogurt. yeah. Okay. So okay. that's typical breakfast and some boiled eggs. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Fry, yeah, they eat a lot of boiled eggs, fry eggs. It's funny know. how eggs always work their oh, way yeah. in. Oh, yeah, eggs are <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> They're very cheap right now, too. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you tell me about it. Uh, the fu- the fool? Is that the fowl? Yeah, fava beans. Uh, is that on the menu right now? Yeah, it is. Oh, okay. always been. Okay. Yeah, you I've need never, to try I've it. I've never had it. Yeah, it's really delicious, yeah. Is it a hot lot of garlic, though. Oh, um, that's right up my alley. <laughs> uh, is, that, um, is that cold or hot? It's hot. Okay. It's a hot uh, meal, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw that you're, uh, the belly dancers are back. Is this oh, true? yeah. We're coming tonight. Nice. And the 21st of the month, twice a month, we're going to be, you know, having her. Okay. Yeah. Finally, I convinced her being hustling different belly dance. Nobody wants to do it. I said, <laughs> no, no, we're over that. So finally one, they said, yeah, I can keep doing it twice a month. Beautiful. 
Yeah. One time I was in Flagstaff, Arizona, and it was their Fourth of July parade, uh-huh. and literally they had the I, I, the Flagstaff Belly Dancing Club oh. or something like that. Yeah. And literally these ten women were belly dancing for three miles. Oh my! It was unbelievable. God. I was like, cute. Wow. Yeah. That was nice to see. It. <laughs> we'll have to see if any of them want to drive down and uh, work at Shish Kebab on a Friday oh, night. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, what's hours of operations for Shish Kebab? Okay, so from Monday through Friday through Saturday we do 11 to 9 we cut uh, you know half an hour because now people by 8 you can feel yeah. it start yeah. leaving no more business so but we still uh, stay like on Monday through Friday until 9 okay and same thing Saturday on Sunday we do from 12 to 8 to you know 7 to 8 o'clock sure yeah we start wrapping it up yeah. well you're still my favorite Mediterranean Middle Eastern oh thank you thank you, you thank you thank you you've done it all you've done you do it everything's from scratch we've been there 30 years in august so it's been quite a long ride they're absolutely doing something right right <laughs> you 30 I, years in business i was i was seducing her to move to uh, somewhere north of ina hey, i wish i wish know. she would hey, i wish she would hey, yeah. you, you never know you know you never know <laughs> I, I have no one doing what you're doing anywhere north of river really oh my god and so i'm just telling you shish kebab Dose coming up soon. Dose, yes. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, "What are you? Are you going to manage it, De Simone?" So, anyway, congratulations on thirty years. Well, thank you so much. And thank we you. we we love what you do. And Mark's a huge fan, and, and a lot of the Wakeys are huge fans. So, yeah, thank you so much for yeah. patronizing the business. All right, Reina, you're the best. Love you. I love you too. And you take care. <laughs> you too. Thank you for having me. All right, Shishka Bob House. They're on Broadway, right across from Park Place Mall, between uh, on the north side of Broadway, between Wilmot and Craycroft. Our good friend Fatima from Inca's Peruvian, Kolb and Sunrise. How are you doing, young lady? Good morning, Chris. <laughs> good morning, everybody. Thank you for having us this morning. What is what is what is the basic tenets, the building blocks of Peruvian cuisine? Peruvian cuisine has a lot of variety through the world. So we involve flavors from the four continents. But uh, if you ask me for something a staple from Peru, I brought today my ambassador, uh, ceviche, uh, pisco sour, lomo saltado, and ají de gallina, my favorite one, <laughs> seco de carne. So, yeah, we, we are very, um, cons- you know, like always we have the same menu at Incas for over 13 years because we are very consistent. So there seems to be, you talk about the four continents, right? Mm-hmm. So one of them seems to be always, I, I, there seems to be an Asian influence yes. in Peruvian where do we see that in the food sometimes? If you uh, think in something, you know, like um, Mexico, Mexico, right. uh, fajitas, lomo saltado. Right. So, tallarín saltado is like an Asian, and I say, you know, involves the four continents of flavors from all over the world. So, Indian, you know, spices, and mm-hmm. it's just uh, we made a great combination with pretty much every single ingredient. So uh, you brought us the 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 ceviche mixto, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful plate. And I'll put it pictures is. up later. But Mark was fascinated by the giant slices of corn. Yes, it's imported from Peru. You don't see here anywhere. I've never seen that before. And it tastes amazing. Yeah, yeah. it looks great. Combination <laughs> with the seafood and uh, the jam, you know, the camote. <laughs> so, <laughs> unusual to have, you know, sweet potato and corn and a seafood, but once you combine all those beauty, it's 
tastes amazing. Well, it's a beautiful presentation. It really it is. It, yeah, uh, the it really way is. you look at it here, that's the way we make it at Incas. Beautiful. You order and we made it fresh, as you saw me a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. And the shrimp are beautiful. And Yeah, we are, we are blessed to have an amazing uh, seafood provided in town. What well, I've, what, I've got to ask, too, sure, because please. as long as I'm on the breakfast kick, what is a typical Peruvian breakfast? Ceviche mix, so it could be. Is it really? Oh, yeah, yeah. ceviche. I mean, after hangover, you can have a ceviche. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, ceviche is one of those, and also empanadas. empanadas. We have in, uh, in Inca's uh, seasonal okay. uh, tamales, you know, with cafecito, chicharrón de, po chicharrón de pollo, chicharrón de carne. So, yeah, the, that's a variety of breakfast. Do eggs work their way into that at all? You, of course, yes? always, okay, on the okay. side. Okay, so, on the yeah, side. Okay. Yeah, yeah, like lomo saltado, they yeah. call lomo montado a la pobre. Okay. So you can have the lomo saltado and we made uh, uh, eggs on top. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. When nice. you talk about seasonal empanadas... When do what 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 what's the typical ingredients in a, in a Peruvian empanada? The typical ingredient, different from any other empanada in the world, is the type of the season that you use for the filling, right. uh, which is the rocoto and the ají amarillo plays a whole role when you are making you know the beef to put it inside. It's like like the tamal, but an empanada, you know, right. different. Yes. And the the um, that uh, amarilla, that yellow chili pepper. Yes, ají amarillo. That plays. That's in inside the with the meat. Uh, we use part of the uh, part of the chili to have the season. And if you think like a Peruvian is so much encouraged into ajis, which is ají amarillo, rocoto, mm -hmm. ají limo, uh, those kind of ajis played a different role on the cuisine. Like, for example, the ají amarillo is a little bit flavor, uh, like fruity, spicy. Right. So you combine all those three, and it creates an amazing, different taste of every on every single dish of Peruvian cuisine. Mm -hmm. When I was there uh, with Herberto a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and uh, your amazing server—I forgot her name—she uh, was great. Uh, she brought us like this extra chili in a in a in a little side dish. Rocoto. That stuff. Yes. See, it's different. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit spicy, but you feel like fruity flavor. I mean, it's like. This is not a regular chili. It has something that is it's natural from Peru. Yeah. So that's one of the unique, uh, you know, cuisines mm -hmm. from from Peru. It's an amazing eclectic art. So you brought over, you brought up hangovers earlier, but how's uh, <laughs> <laughs> this for a transition? Uh, you you brought these two beautiful pisco sours. Oh yes, adios margaritas, hola pisco sour. <laughs> so yeah, pisco, a uh, pisco does uh, main. Um, liqueur from Peru. Okay. I will describe pisco as a grappa probably. It has a high volume of alcohol like tequila, okay. but the difference between tequila and pisco and grappa, pisco is unique because it's made out of uh, distilled grapes gotcha. from okay. the vineyards in Peru. That's why pisco is the best from Peru because of the, uh, you know, the temperature where the grapes are racing so it's a beautiful veneers so how's the peruvian wine scene you know for peruvian wines i i drink a lot of malbecs out of chile mm -hmm. right I, I i should i be jumping into some peruvian wines you should try it unfortunately in incas we are not able to introduce any wine from peru uh the vendors in arizona doesn't have license for wines uh -huh. we are very lucky we are blessed that we have the pisco in <laughs> through a legal vendor <laughs> 
And again, the the presentation of the sour that you that you brought us today. So you were so cute. You you said, "Oh, my piece goes unhappy. I need to give the finishing touch." Yes. Explain that finishing touch you put uh, on there. The little uh, bitter uh, drop. You can use uh, cinnamon instead, but <laughs> in Inca, our signature is the little bitter. Mm-hmm. It helps because it blocks any anything any smell from the pisco, but it brings the pisco up. Love so it. it's it's a it's a it's an amazing taste. I love it. All right. So Inca's is at the Bash's Shopping Center on Colburn Sunrise. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your hours of operations? Uh, we open uh, from eleven thirty until nine p.m. on the weekends, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We open uh, until eight during the weekdays. Are you still doing some live music on the patio once? Oh yes, it's beautiful, especially with this weather and mm-hmm. the beautiful views. And our patio, the plaza gets so much, like uh, you know, people just walking around and they wanted to stop and they end up in getting the canchita, which is our engagement ring. Once <sighs> you try the canchita, you belong to Incas. I love it. Love what you do. Thank you. Keep up so, the good work. Thank you. So over 13 years in business. Thank nice. you, Tucson. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everybody, for your wonderful for your wonderful support. I'm so excited to be here again. 13 years. 13 wow. years. Yeah, I just started in my 20s. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Incas Peruvian. Give them a shot. They're amazing. We have our friends Vito Croce and Vito Croce here. <laughs> <laughs> From Vero's Italian Bakery on wow. Broadway and 22nd. Good morning. Morning. Vito Sr., how are you? I'm doing great, great. And you? Not too bad. Let's talk about St. Joseph's Day. It's coming up. Uh, as a guy in New York, St. Patrick's Day is so huge in New York, right? <laughs> but then at the same time, two days later is St. Joseph's Day. And of course, but I have a lot of Josephs in my family, including my big brother, Joe. And I had a celebration. Right. I had a grandma named Josephine, right? <laughs> so for for me in our household, March 19th was kind of a minor holiday in the De Simone household. I mean, I think Joe got gifts and crap. St. Christopher, uh, I'm a second-rate saint on July 25th, according to the Catholic Church. So, you know, they, they throw me a pizza or something, which is fine on July. But he'd get gifts and stuff, and I'm like, hey, yeah, what's going on there, bro? You know, so what's St. Joseph's Day mean for you guys as an Italian family? Oh, gosh. For me, it's always the food. <laughs> I love the, the food of the holidays is always my favorite part. You know, as you get older, gifts, you know, dwindle down a little bit. But there's always the food. So St. Joseph's food, pasta milanese with the sardines and the, the raisins and the pine nuts. Of course, we got the St. Uh, Zeppelis here with the custard and the, the rigotta. You know, the debate ensues. So that's so. my question is for you guys, now that I have my bakery experts here. We heard of St. Joseph's Finchi and then there's Zeppeli, mm. right? Is there a difference? What's the difference between a Finchi and a Zeppeli? So the big difference that I've always seen is the Sfingi has the uh, the anchovies inside of it, and it's just a plain dough, right? Well, and then the Zeppoli is a sweeter one. Depends what part of Italy you're from, but uh, in Palermo or Sicily, where we're from, the Sfingis are made with the rice, and then uh, it's you know made into a batter, and it's fried, and then you just uh, dip it in cinnamon and sugar. Mm. Gotcha. So, okay. So then, but I've also seen it like some like festivals in New York that a Zeppeli is the fried piece of dough, right? Is that like a Neapolitan thing? I don't know. So, uh, you know, that, <laughs> that I'm not sure. That's okay. So, well, when you go to, when you go to, when I, I just took some beautiful pictures of this, but you, when you go to St. Joseph's for St. Joseph's Day, pastries, you're already for sale, right? Mm-hmm. You say, said March 1st, you get the St. Joseph's Zeppeli, right? This is the order, right? And then the difference we have here is just the topping of these two boxes. Well, 
One of them has got the traditional ricotta, uh, similar, or same as the cannoli filling, and the other one has got a, a custard whipped cream. Gotcha. And they're both inside and out. Yes. So it's, you see the custard and the ricotta on top, but it's also filled inside. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. And do we, so um, I've been eating St. Joseph Zeppeli my entire life, right? Is there a reason why Zeppeli for St. Joseph's Day? Do you guys know any of the origin of, of that at all of why or is this something they've always done you you went to a Catholic school church <laughs> <laughs> I don't know <laughs> uh, you know it's, it's a tradition well my mother made it my, yes, my grandmother you. made it and, <laughs> and everybody made it so we make it it's more so. family tradition <laughs> for us <laughs> you know I know in back, back in Italy they do the big St. Joseph's table you know with all the breads mm, and well, stuff like that back, back in Italy what they do is um they prepare all kinds of food, um, like my son said, uh, pasta milanese. They also have fried anchovies, um, all, all types of foods. And what they do is they have um, the kids in the town that uh, are poor, and they, they come with the priest, and they knock on the door, they say a prayer, and then uh, they let the kids come in and enjoy the the food for free. And it, it, that was a big thing, me growing up in uh, Sicily. And Love it. And this was part of the pastries that, uh, that we're doing on there as well. Beautiful. All right, what's the hours of operation for Vero's Italian Bakery and Cafe, gentlemen? We are open Tuesday through Saturday. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and fr- uh, Saturdays from 8, sorry, 9 to 3. And uh, Fridays were open for dinner until 8 p.m. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks for bringing all the goodies. Happy St. Joseph's Day to both you guys. Happy St. Joseph's and uh, happy upcoming St. Patrick's. Correct. I do, we do both in my household, so we'll do it. Up. Why not? Why not? Why not? All the festivities. All right. Vero's Italian Bakery and Cafe. They're on the northeast corner of 22nd and Sarnoff on the east side of town. Mm-hmm. And uh, Junior, what's the uh, what's the website for people to check out? Vero'sBakery.com. Love it. All right. Congratulations on 38 years of excellence and uh, keep going. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.